Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. Uh, today, we have the honor to welcome Professor Julian Zelizer, who is the Malcolm Stevenson Forbes class of 1914, uh, 41 professor of history and public affairs at Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. He has been one of the pioneers in the revival of American political history and the author and editor of more than 20 books on American uh, political history. And, and we're here to talk about his latest book, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of a New Republican Party. It's, it's a fascinating book. Uh, so thanks so much for joining me remotely, Professor Salazar. It's great to be with you. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Uh, and uh, co-hosting the show with me is my dear friend, Terrell Seabrooks, who is a senior at Princeton. Uh, in his free time, he serves as the vice president of Princeton's American Whip Cliosophic Society, which is the nation's oldest politics and debate society and also the biggest student organization at Princeton. And he is also a member of Princeton's debate panel and uh, the men lacrosse team. So thanks so much for co-hosting the show with me, Terrell. Thank you for having me, Tiger. Uh, so uh, Professor Salazar, why don't we jump right in? So your newest book, Burning Down the House, basically explores how Newt Gingrich, uh, who served as the 50th speaker of the United States House of Representatives from around 1995 to 99, how he started this era in Republican Party where he felt it was okay to afford to lose on governing, but actually win politically. So, so he's willing to shut down the government in exchange for political points against the Democrats and such. And so uh, he, he kind of unleashed this new era of partisanship. So why don't we jump right in? Would you mind giving us a quick rundown of your, of your book and what you hope to achieve with this project? Yeah, it's a, it's a book about how this guy came to power, how Newt Gingrich was elected in 1978 uh, from a district in Georgia, how he went from being seen as this legislator you stayed away from and could never be seen as re, you know, a respectable leader because of his tactics into being one of the power brokers of Republican politics. And his argument was what you said, that Republicans needed to prioritize partisanship above all else. And uh, if that meant destroying governing institutions, if that meant ignoring or wrecking norms that helped guide legislators toward making decisions, if that involved, uh, involved kind of character assassination on a regular basis, so be it. In pursuit of partisan power, that was fine. And, and so the story of the book is about him entering politics, him promoting this view, uh, in the post-Watergate era when a lot of Americans didn't trust government and, and were listening to this kind of argument. And ultimately, he brings down the Speaker of the House, Jim Wright, in 1989. And that's a key moment because it's at that moment that many Republicans who don't like him in particular and are looking at him as something distasteful say, well, this guy knows what he's doing. He just brought down the top Democrat, really the top member of Congress, and in 1989, because of what he's doing, they elect Gingrich to be the House Minority Whip, which uh, sounds like a technical position, but it's actually one of the top leadership roles and it puts you on path to being Speaker of the House. So uh, this kind of partisanship, it's not just that we were more partisan by the 80s, end of the 80s, but Gingrich's style of smash mouth partisanship wins out and he's now a leader of the GOP. Excellent. And you talk about his speak or his takedown of Speaker Jim Wright as one of the pivotal moments of him sweeping aside the old order and replacing it with the new order. Can you just dive into that a little bit deeper, what the old order was, and then now what the new regime is under Gingrich? Sure. I mean, the, the old order was the comes out of the period from the 1930s, the Great Depression, through the 1960s and the Great Society. And you had two parties and they certainly were willing to play hardball politics, but uh, most members of Congress were still committed to the priority of governance, meaning you could be partisan, but you always balance that with what the institution needed just to function so that parties could make decisions. You know, members were still pretty civil with each other on a regular basis. They accepted certain procedures as just part of the status quo. So passing a budget in Congress wasn't really meant to be uh, an element of partisan warfare. Uh, you debated it, but ultimately you were gonna pass a budget. There was a sense in the older order 
that the leaders were the leaders and they were going to stay in place unless there was something extraordinary revealed, they wouldn't fall from power very quickly. Uh, this was a Congress that worked through seniority. The longer you stayed in office, the more powerful you became. Uh, and there was also just a notion that being a legislator, uh, being a politician was in itself a, a vocation. Your commitment ultimately was not just to your party, it was to uh, making sure that the organs of government worked effectively. And, and this really changes in the 80s. There's lots of things that happen, but one were people like Gingrich who uh, pioneered a very different attitude uh, through takedowns and through using processes like the budget as a tool of partisan politics. And just as a brief follow-up, I mean, no, no one can doubt that Gingrich has been a, a pivotal figure in our history. And some historians say, you know, man makes the moment. Some say the moment makes the man. You did touch on his upbringing a little bit and what shaped him for this role. Do you think that Gingrich is somebody special and unique, or do you think that this was a natural trend in the way that politics are going anyway? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and I'm a historian who studies both sides of that. And I even in this book try to do that. It's not a book that uh, says, if you only understand Gingrich, you understand how everything unfolded. I mean, part of what made Gingrich interesting was he understood fundamental changes that were taking place in politics. For example, he understood what did this new year of cable, television, and investigative journalism, which really take shape in the 1970s and 80s, what did it mean if you were part of the party leadership? How did you use that? Uh, he understood how this post-Watergate environment made the political establishment, which was democratic uh, until that time, how it made them vulnerable in ways they hadn't been vulnerable before, uh, because Americans just didn't trust anyone anymore who was in power. And he understood how the parties were sorting, and he himself was a product of this new generation of Republicans in the South, a region that had traditionally been democratic. And he was part of an era where the Republican Party was moving to a Southern and Sunbelt base, which would allow the party to become uh, more united internally. Those three factors are not kind of individual person factors. These are big changes taking place. Uh, and I write about all those in the book and I've written about those, but, but I also believe individuals do matter. And in some ways in this book, I really wanted to make that point for readers and myself. Um, that we can talk about why did Washington become so partisan and these huge macro trends you hear about in the media all the time, the sorting of voters and gerrymandering. But there's people, there's real moments when politics moves one way and it doesn't move another way. And that's part of what historians have to capture. And I'm writing a history of partisanship. This is just one part of it. But this is a person and this is a specific moment in 1989 that I think really did help move uh, our politics in this direction. You could imagine the counterfactuals. What if Jim Wright had not fallen from power? What if Democrats had successfully quashed Newt Gingrich and Republicans looked at Gingrich and said, hey, this style isn't a winning style. This is going to permanently leave us as a political minority. Uh, and, and if that had all happened, yeah, I could imagine leaders acted differently. So, so I'm trying to thread the needle, but I really do want to bring back the characters and individuals with this book. Uh, Professor Elzer, before we go into many of the vivid uh, details about uh, Gingrich as a person in, in terms of you know, his uh, lavish uh, appearances on, on in the media and his relationship with President Trump and such, I also just want to quickly go a little bit deeper in, into the idea of partisanship because uh, in the last chapter of your book, you wrote this wonderfully put paragraph that kind of uh, summarizes the idea of who Gingrich is. You said, even though Gingrich liked to present himself as a big idea man, the truth is that his contributions as a partisan tactician were far more important than anything he did in terms of policy. So uh, most of the policy stuff was basically in the traditional toolbox, but he made his biggest impact on the GOP by defining what partisanship should look like and by expanding the boundaries of what was permissible in the arena of congressional politics, uh, namely that Gingrich was not responsible for growing partisan polarization on Capitol Hill, but he legitimated ruthless and destructive practices 
that had once been relegated to the margin. So that's this kind of key idea that he really went for it. So would you mind just giving us a little bit more detail, for example, how he actually took down Jim Wright, for example, maybe you could set the scene for us a little bit, how he really became that ruthless figure. Yeah, so, so the uh, argument there in that section that, uh, that, I'm, uh, that you're referring to is essentially saying, look, there's different kinds of partisanship. Partisanship doesn't, it, it's not a one size fits all phenomenon. And um, in the 70s, you had partisanship, more partisan Democrats, for example. And what did that mean? That meant that they were much more uh, focused on voting the party line. Party leaders made sure that uh, individual members in their party didn't defect. Uh, it meant that you were tougher with the opposition. They were, it's true, not willing to include Republicans uh, as much in negotiations. That's, that's partisanship as we know it. Gingrich was very different. And the, the, the right story is really about watching a Republican decimate the character uh, of a public servant. Uh, Jim Wright was a Texas Democrat. He had been in office for decades, and he was a prototype of that older order we talked about. He moved his way up the political ladder slowly. He became majority leader for the Democrats in 1976. And then when Tip O'Neill retires, who was the speaker in 1986, Jim Wright's next to succeed him. And Jim Wright had some vulnerabilities. Um, one vulnerability is he was a partisan Democrat. He was tough with Republicans. And not in a nasty way, but he held the line to make sure that Democrats could check what Ronald Reagan was doing in the White House. And so a lot of Republicans didn't like him. They thought he was tough uh, and they were happy to bring him down. And the second, and this is relevant, there were these stories in the press about questionable behavior by Wright, uh, you know, which, which was important. Uh, for example, uh, there were rules in Congress passed after Watergate that a member of Congress could only earn so much money making speeches when you get honoraria for making speeches. And once you hit a limit, that was it. So there were news reports that Jim Wright would publish this book of speeches. He would speak to large groups and he would ask them to buy, you know, a thousand copies of the book because that money wasn't covered by the ethics laws. And a lot of legislators did that. It was kind of a pretty familiar uh, practice not unethical, not illegal, just a little yucky. And there were stories like that. And, and so Gingrich takes these media reports and he starts to disseminate them to politicians. He disseminates them to other reporters and he whips Washington up into a frenzy, convincing people not that Jim Wright uh, was someone who was not shady, but acting like many legislators did. You know, you could be, uh, cleaner than the way they acted, but instead saying he was the most corrupt politician in American history. He basically criminalized him, suggesting he was doing things to just steal money from the public and earn lots of money, even though he didn't have much money, and painted a caricature for the public that was pretty devastating. And Wright never forgave him for what he did um, until the very end of his life. That's a, a different kind of partisanship um, than just saying each party is going to represent something and hold the line. And it, and it becomes so severe that ultimately even other Democrats say, look, we, we support you, Speaker Wright, but you need to resign or it's going to cost us too much at the ballot box. That's very interesting. And I stuck on a phrase you used there. You said painting a caricature. And at one point in your book, you actually say that uh, Gingrich is like Michelangelo and Trump is his statue of David. Um, and, you know, so you say Gingrich is kind of painting the scene. He's, he's allowing these newer politicians to take advantage of the, the, the scene that he painted in the past. So my question here is, you know, Washington definitely has other sides to it. In this case, the other side is the Democrats. Who is... Gingrich is Leonardo da Vinci. Who's his rival if he's the Michelangelo? Or do you believe that, as Steve Bannon said, the Democrats are too engaged in pillow fighting when Gingrich was more in line with the ruthless tactic? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's, there's two parts of my answer to this. First, it's important, and this is something that I try to stress in my book, that the Republican establishment, the Republican leaders 
in the end, they let Gingrich be part of the team. And too often we talk, and we still talk, about this huge division between the Republican establishment and uh, the more aggressive partisans like Gingrich then, like the Tea Party now, or Donald Trump, President Trump. But what I argue in the book is Republicans, they, they were tempted by him because they believed maybe he was right. Maybe he was on to something about winning power. And, and so Gingrich ultimately is part of a Republican party as it takes form in the 80s. His opponents were Democrats and, and Jim Wright, uh, Tip O'Neill before him, those are the people he sees as, as his enemy. Uh, he sees a Democratic majority that had been in power in the House since 1954 that had continued to win re-election and which had so much control that a lot of Ronald Reagan's agenda was never gonna get through Congress. It was simply impossible to really have a Reagan revolution. And there were some Democrats who wanted to fight back harder against Newt Gingrich. There was a guy named um, Bill Alexander uh, who was from Arkansas and he was one of the Democratic leaders and he published op-eds telling fellow Democrats, we have to get tougher with this guy. We have to tell the public his ethics problems. We have to tell the public what, what kind of person he is, because if we play fair on our side and he plays the way he plays, we're gonna lose. But most Democrats weren't, they were more timid. His opponents were timid. That's, you know, a part of the story I found. Uh, they ultimately didn't, as a collective group, wanna go to the kind of place that Newt Gingrich was taking his party. And in the end, they are the ones who pressure Wright to actually resign when he didn't have to. There was no reason Speaker Wright had to resign in 1989. Uh, he was never found to have broken an ethical rule or a law. There was gonna be a more serious investigation, but no one knew what that was gonna result in. But Democrats get scared and they keep saying, uh-oh, 1990 is gonna be devastating. They start a whispering campaign to the reporters saying, we think he should go and we're not gonna support him. They tell him it's time for him to go. Republicans would never have done that. I mean, that's the difference if it was one of their own. Um, and so the, there's a difference with the two parties. I think that's important and it continues to this day. And part of the reason I'll finish on this is that um, Democrats ultimately are a party that believe government is central. Republicans are a party that feel government is secondary at best. Markets are more important government is inefficient. And so what does that mean? That means if you're a Republican, you're willing to go much further in your partisanship because if that uh, destroys the way government works or if that creates gridlock and dysfunction, that's totally fine. Whereas Democrats are always checked and they were checked even with right. We can't let things get out of control because then that government they believe in is no longer useful. And so Democrats are weighed down by that in some ways, which might be a very good thing, but they are weighed down by that in terms of the kind of partisanship they practice. And so I think Gingrich had a, a opponent that was weaker than he was. Uh, and, and I think that's kind of what Republicans circled around him for. They understood there was a, a logic to his method. And just as a brief follow-up, is this a trend or a belief in the Democratic Party that you think will continue to persist? I think some, it may be argued that some people are really advocating for progressive change within the Democratic Party, and they're willing to stick to their principles sometimes, even if it means uh, sacrificing in other areas. So do you see that trend ever changing for Democrats, or do you think it's going to remain that way? I think it's going to remain that way. I mean, I have a quote in the, I think it's in the introduction uh, where Steve Bannon, who was one of President Trump's advisors, said in a film recently, he was interviewed and he said, you know, Republicans go for the head wound and Democrats come ready for a pillow fight. And, and I think that is very true often. And uh, you, you see different times this happens in the 2000 election. Uh, and the 2004 election, Republicans really uh, eviscerated Al Gore and John Kerry uh, using kind of below the belt accusations about them. John Kerry, a Vietnam vet, was basically painted as an unpatriotic uh, person who lied about his record. And, and Democrats didn't have a full response to that. You saw this in the Obama years when Senator McConnell 
just refused to consider uh, the Supreme Court nominee of President Obama. It was amazing. He just said, we're not even going to meet with him, let alone have a vote on him. And Democrats don't have a response. When President Trump took office, They many of them just moved forward with his appointees, uh, including Justice Gorsuch. It was very different. I don't think it's going to go away. I mean, I think you have younger Democrats like AOC uh, or uh, Congresswoman Hunter, who's more to the center, but who are saying we have to be tougher at least, not be Gingrich or Trump-like, but we have to be more aggressive in our media usage. We have to be more aggressive in responding uh, to the disinformation that comes from the GOP. But I still think the party in some ways will never be able to totally unleash uh, because of this difference in outlook about Washington and the role of government in America. Uh, before I jump uh, into another fascinating area in, of your book, which is uh, the Gingrich relationship with Trump, uh, maybe I could quickly follow up about the part that you, you talked about, partisan polarization, things like that. Uh, is Gingrich not responsible for growing partisan polarization itself per se? Is it, is it more that he is pushing for the ruthless tactics? Because based on what you were just saying, it seems that uh, we're very unsure where, where both parties are headed right now at, at this moment. No, he I mean, I think his kind of partisanship fueled partisanship. It solidified it. So uh, here's a, a specific example is uh, Newt Gingrich, since 1984, there was this thing called GOPAC, which was a pretty defunct political action committee started by uh, 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 DuPont, uh, a moderate Republican, and he took it over. No one wanted it. And he basically takes this organization, raises money for it, and he uses it to disseminate tapes that he makes, um, giving Republicans advice on how to be effective and not, how not to be losers all the time. This is in the mid 80s. And one of the, uh, and, and memos go along with this. And, and one of the memos he will eventually send out through GOPAC, I think it's in 1990, the thesis is how do you speak like Newt? That's literally what it's explaining. Uh, what words do you have to use if you're Republican to sound more like this Newt Gingrich? And the words that are recommended, it says you have to call Democrats sick. You have to call them traitors. You have to call them corrupt. It's a list of words which is even unbelievable today in the middle of everything uh, that we hear on a daily basis. And when you convince politicians to use language like that, and voters hear that language about a party they don't support, it fuels partisanship because that rhetoric gets out in the air. Uh, and when you criminalize your opponent rather than disagreeing with your opponent, it furthers the divisions between the parties. If your opponent politically is literally or figuratively a criminal, you can never reach an agreement with them. Uh, so I think the effect of Gingrich wasn't simply a strategic victory, it actually coarsened our politics and made that partisanship much, much worse than it otherwise would have been. Thank you. And I guess kind of now shifting more to the modern era, a little right. bit more in Gingrich's relationship with Trump. You start out the book opening with Newt Gingrich being considered for a vice presidential run. And you have a quote from Gingrich. He, uh, he describes himself as a pirate and he says Trump is one as well. And from his words, he says, quote, uh, speaking about Trump, he's outside the normal system. He gets things done. He's bold. He's actually like a figure out of a movie. In a lot of ways, my entire career has been a little bit like a pirate. I've taken on the establishment of both parties. I'm very proud to fight in the media. So together, Trump and Gingrich would have been this two pirate ticket. Looking back now, we know that Trump did choose Pence, but what would that two pirate ticket have looked like? What impact do you think it might have had? And you know, we see that he went with Pence, and what do you think came from that? I think, I mean, it's funny. I wrote most of this book. It, it was pretty much written before Trump was seriously going to be the nominee for the Republican Party. I was really writing it more thinking about the Tea Party uh, and thinking about the Obama years and the way the Republican Party unfolded. Donald Trump was not on my mind at all. Uh, and I was really, by the time he's president, I'm revising the book, uh, which takes me a while, and working on the writing. 
So uh, though I ended up starting the book with the story you're talking about, it's true, Gingrich was one of the finalists uh, for this job. Many thought he would have been the best pick because they are two like-minded politicians and they would have been pretty ruthless together. But that interview that Gingrich gives on Fox News, it's, it's really amazing to watch because he basically is talking uh, Trump out of the job, uh, which is, is not unlike Gingrich. He literally says what's on his mind often, and that can often be destructive to him. But he was, he was making the point that Trump really is a, a Gingrich-style Republican, that uh, he's unwilling to remain in conventional boundaries. He's willing to be, you know, tough and do anything like a pirate uh, to steal uh, if, if that's necessary. He does not say that. Uh, but that's the image. And he's saying maybe that's too much for a ticket. And it might have been. I mean, Trump uh, is a lot uh, for the ticket. I still think he made sense for the Republican Party in ways a lot of Republicans are not uh, acknowledging. But to have two people like that, that would have been a lot. Uh, Gingrich it, it would be very hard to discipline as a vice presidential candidate. He would not like to be in a secondary role. I do think he, he does see at some level Trump as a product of him uh, and his, his contributions to American politics. So I don't know. Someone once asked, would that have uh, you know, undercut the ticket? Maybe, maybe if there was ever a high profile vice presidential pick, it would be him. But it's been remarkable to see the relationship between the two of them um, after that vice presidential moment. Gingrich has continued to be one of President Trump's most vocal supporters on the media. Uh, you could turn on Fox News many nights, including this week, uh, and he's on all the time. And uh, he also has written, I think, five books now about Trump. And uh, he has a new one out right now about why Trump's reelection is central to the future of our democracy and our country. So he's very uh, sympathetic to him. And they have, I think Trump listens to his counsel, I've heard, in the White House. And, and it makes sense to me. It makes total sense. I, I really didn't have to say that much other than the introduction about the connections, not because I wanted to be subtle, but because I think Gingrich was laying out all the things we see today from attacking the establishment, quote unquote, endlessly, to using the media, not the conservative media, just the mainstream media as a tool to relentlessly promote the agenda that you want to get out there. Uh, Professor Zelizer, why don't we dig a little bit deeper uh, into the, your exploration of Gingrich's relationship with the media, because it is really fascinating. He thrives in the media, as you wrote in the book. Gingrich is a historian by training, having received his PhD from Tulane. And he really understood the importance of narratives and good storytelling. So uh, as you wrote, he would let an idea circulate in the media ecosystem. And when his critics pounced, he would turn their words against them. So for Gingrich, uh, the central battle was shaping the way voters conceived of the basic problem at, at hand. So uh, was this the beginning of quote unquote spinning or, or coupled with the rise of TV politics such that you know, the line between entertainment and serious policy discourse became increasingly blurred and, and which kind of eventually led to the rise of Do Donald Trump in 2016. Would you say that he, we could contribute that to Newt Gingrich? Well, spinning the news is something there's a long history of, and most presidents, for example, have had people whose job is to spin the news in a particular way. Uh, but there are different uh, kind of contributions or uh, you know, problems that Gingrich made uh, using the media. I mean, one thing he realized was uh, he was a politician who comes of age in the era of both cable television, which is very particular, as well as investigative journalism after Watergate, where he had a lot of reporters who were determined to find out what the next Watergate was, to find out where the corruption was rooted. Now, one thing Gingrich understands very well is what you said. He, he is a historian, and I believe that was relevant in that he knew part of what a politician does is tell a story. Uh, and sometimes that's spinning or sometimes that's being cognizant of the rhetoric that you use, the words that you use. And he had all these memos I found where he's telling Republicans, you have to say the same thing over and over. You have to tell the same story whenever you're on the Sunday talk shows or you have an interview in the media. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense to people. And, and he's very uh, aware of that. 
Two, he's aware that, uh, and he says this directly, that journalists love confrontation. They almost can't avoid it. And so he purposely would uh, engage in fights, even if I'm not sure he even particularly cared about it. And he would set up high stakes moments because he knew the media would bite. So one of the stories I tell earlier in the book is something called Cam Scam, where in 1983 and 84, uh, he sees this channel C-SPAN, which is a cable network that covers the house floor, not uh, a channel that has tons of viewers, but it still gets viewers. And at the end of every day, he also realized any member of Congress can get up and make a one minute speech, short speech about absolutely anything. You don't have to be powerful to do it. So he and a group of allies every day would get up and at the end of the day, they would make a speech with the C-SPAN camera focused only on the speaker. That was the rule um, because they didn't want to catch members picking their nose or doing anything embarrassing. And they'd get on the floor and they'd make speeches saying the Democrats don't support Ronald Reagan's fight against communism. The Democrats won't fund our military in Central America. And the speeches got worse and worse. They'd say the Democrats are essentially not patriotic. And eventually they started saying, Congressman X, do you have a response to that? And they would name the congressperson and say, what's your response? And if you were watching TV, you just see the speaker like you're watching me right now. And it looked like the Democrats had no response. But what people didn't know was the chamber at five o'clock and six o'clock was empty. Members <laughs> they left. And, and it was really political theater. He understood what it would look like. He understood how he could get the message. And eventually, Speaker O'Neill, he's still, Tip O'Neill's still a speaker, he gets so mad, he barges into the House and he orders the cameraman against the rules of the house to pan the chamber and show that there's no one there. This is a total uh, uh, fabrication, what they're doing. And instantly, it's almost an instinct. He has Gingrich turns it against them and he says, look, the speaker's corrupt. He doesn't follow the rules. This is exactly what I'm trying to point out. And they start talking about that in the media. And, and the final part of the story, and he talked about this uh, several times was the, the uh, kind of the, the best part in some ways, wasn't only the whole controversy, but all three major television networks covered this. And they had never covered him before. They never covered Newt Gingrich. And they didn't really talk about what was going on on C-SPAN, but this was dramatic. It was great confrontation. It was great drama. And so he said, I'm on all the networks and now I've really arrived. So, so there's different parts of the media like that, that he really had a good instinct about. And, and I think those are all things we see today uh, from the storytelling to the use of blistering words and forcing confrontation. President Trump does this all the time, knowing the media can't avoid covering this kind of stuff. Um, and, and, and so I think those are some of the threads with today. For sure. And I, I mean, I've had the, honor of going to see the house in motion and seeing them actually work and I remember one of the first times I went there I sat in and they were nobody in the chamber it was just one lone Alaskan representative up there explaining the Alaskan of the day for his uh one of his local districts and I was like this is this is great I, I'm glad they're doing this but you expect there to be a huge crowd and there's not but I mean I just thought that was hilarious but well, even part still part of why they have those at the end of the day it's interesting it's a priest. I mean, Congress wasn't on TV until the 70s, other than uh, high profile hearings. So what members used to do, there's, there's something called the congressional record, which is the written record of every speech made. And you could insert things. And they would make those speeches usually either they would like put, read out a newspaper article that was relevant to them, or they would honor a constituent and announce the, you know, a post office was named after that person. But when television cameras are rolling on national cable, all of a sudden that same act, which was irrelevant, becomes a, a much more useful tool. And, and so what you saw, Gingrich not only knew that, but he put it together with a TV camera that was rolling all the time and cable television, which was giving 24 hour news channels like C-SPAN, and he put that all together uh, and it was pretty masterful uh, in terms of what he accomplished and pretty destructive in terms of 
the kinds of attacks he was launched on Democrats. For sure. And I mean, as an athlete myself, I understand the importance of a playbook. So when you started talking about Gingrich's playbook, I, I perked up a little bit. You said that uh, one of the essence of his playbook was to flout institutional norms and then when criticized for doing so, cry foul. And I believe that was in reference to the Tip O'Neill story that you were just talking about. Um, but then we see that it's still being used today. I mean, I can't help but think back to, I think it was 2019, when Speaker Pelosi, she Republicans condemned her for uh, basically calling Trump's tweets on the House floor racist. And she called Trump racist, or she said, called the tweets racist. So we kind of still see this story where, you know, they'll rile people up or, you know, they might attempt to rile people up. And then once they get the reaction they're waiting for, they cry foul and they try to condemn or censure or do whatever to push the other party back. Are there any other legislative tactics that they use on the floor, anything else that you see really prominent today? Sure, he believed, he, he was one of the Republicans who said in the 80s that it was worthwhile to uh, threaten that you wouldn't raise something called the debt ceiling, which basically allows the federal government to pay for its obligations. If you don't do that, you send the government into default and the country as well. And uh, he was willing to use that kind of tactic, which today has been used often. And he said, you have to create a crisis sometimes in order to uh, get, get what you want. Uh, he told uh, fellow Republicans in memos that you have to be willing just to tie up the liberation so that nothing can get done. Uh, whether it was in the Senate, using the filibuster regularly or in the House offering endless amendments and causing chaos through provocative speeches, uh, that the point is just to tie up business. It's not necessarily to get something you want. And that's been uh, part of the playbook as well. <clears throat> Professor Salazar, we talked a lot about uh, Trump, we talked about media, we talked about establishment. I mean, those are very grand concepts, but maybe at the end we could also try to tie them a little bit together because uh, Gingrich published this book called uh, Understanding Trump. And his thesis on Trump is that he's this historic figure. And you wrote that, you know, the, the elite media, much of the, the political establishment re refused to try to understand. And, and somehow today in the media, all we hear about it is how uh, there are the establishments who are corrupt, who are against changes. And they are the, whether it's progressive Democrats or whether it's Trump or whether it's Tea Party, those are all actors of change who are, who are there to break up the old order or the establishment or whatever. Uh, would you mind just exploring a little bit about this concept of establishment and, and how Gingrich plays a role? Because it was really interesting to me because I thought, you know, Trump came in with this whole message about uh, drain the swamp. And, and you mentioned how Gingrich was also there to support Trump and he still supports Trump today. But a lot of people are saying, what, what do you mean? Trump is the, the swamp or the establishment today. And, and by, it's very ironic that by attacking on the establishment, Newt Gingrich is basically attacking on the kind of political legacy he helped build, the, the, the party that he represented. So I, I would really love to hear you talk a little bit more about some of those concepts. Yeah, no, that's an important point. And I think uh, attacking the establishment is more a rhetorical argument necessarily than an actual description of, of what's going on. I mean, when Gingrich starts, there is an establishment in the House in that the Democrats have controlled it for so many decades. And so when he said that, uh, he was specifically at some times referring to the Democratic majority. But he used it much more loosely. And I think pretty early on, he understood that that concept just resonates. If you have a country that distrusts institutions from politics to uh, other institutions, even science and business, that uh, it's gonna anger people when they hear there's this establishment that's destroying things. It's a much more useful form of rhetoric, he thought, than conservative versus liberal or um, you know, left-wing versus right-wing, which he uses. But establishment is something much broader. It's almost apolitical, even when you're being extremely political. And what's really interesting is how that rhetoric, it lasted for decades through today even though he uh, is the generation that brought Republicans to power. Republicans have been extraordinarily influential in Washington. There's no way not to consider them uh, a key part of a political establishment. They've had numerous presidencies. They've controlled Capitol Hill. 
K Street, which is where interest groups are aligned with conservative interest groups. And now President Trump is the Republican president. You don't get more establishment than that, attacking the establishment. But it's a, it's a form of rhetoric which allows you to separate yourself. I mean, not only does it focus attention on an enemy, which is in politics useful, but it's allowed this generation of Republicans to keep attempting to separate themselves from the city they're very much a part of, to try to get around this contradiction that they are an anti-government party that has power over government in the city of government. And I think that's how Trump is using it, because he faces the problem of being an incumbent who's an outsider. And so when you attack like this establishment that seems to be everywhere, uh, that's going after you, it's a way to uh, remain an outsider. But it, but it really goes against the history. I mean, it goes against the fact Trump is president, and it goes against the fact that Gingrich, who is now in office since the 70s, his generation of Republicans built the system we have. So if you're attacking the establishment, you're really attacking a lot of Republican figures and legacies. The, the way uh, Newt Gingrich was brought down was also just very, very theatrical or interesting because uh, one could say that he was very much forced to resign because the public thought the way he treated the Clinton impeachment was a little bit too far, right? I mean, the, the public thought, you know, you, you basically are trying to make, make a president who slept with this White House intern and, and accuse him of all kinds of ridiculous charges. And they pu punished him in the subsequent uh, midterms election. And, and that is how the Republican Party thought Gingrich was no longer kind of the viable leader for them. Do you find that a little bit ironic or, 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 or amusing? I, I don't know how, how you feel about that particular episode about the way he was brought down. Well, I mean, so Gingrich becomes speaker in 94, in the election in 95, he starts his term. In 97 already, before the impeachment's underway, he's found uh, to have violated ethics rules, uh, not unlike Jim Wright, uh, and he's fined by the House. They, they actually finish the investigation and fine him a significant amount of money. Then in 98, when he's leading the impeachment against Bill Clinton, uh, there's many things that bother Republicans. Uh, one is that their party is not popular for pursuing this impeachment. And the 98 midterms, they don't do well. And the second is that Gingrich himself is involved in extramarital relationships as he's leading the impeachment uh, around an issue <laughs> directly related to that. And so when he falls from power, there is an irony. You can't miss it. I mean, he's guilty of things he's accusing his opponents of doing. He falls from power. But I often think in some ways it's still a vindication for him, meaning the fact that a speaker falls from power again. Remember, no speaker had resigned ever in American history until Jim Wright. And after Jim Wright, you have, uh, he is one of the speakers who will fall. The person who's going to replace him steps down from the race. Uh, and we've had a, a number of turbulent leadership positions since then. That's part of what he wanted to do. He wanted to make every member of Congress extraordinarily vulnerable. No one could kind of survive a partisan onslaught uh, uh, or uh, internal party decision like happens with him. So it's definitely ironic. Some think it's funny, but in some ways it's a vindication that we were no longer in an era where our leaders were gonna be very stable. And that is, uh, some think that's a good thing. It's better to have a system where leaders can be moved, but it certainly adds to the problems of governance. One thing stable leaders do is they can guide institutions, the House or the Senate, through the passions of the moment toward dealing with policy issues. But if they themselves are extraordinarily vulnerable, as they are today, they're going to be less reluctant to do that. They're going to be less reluctant to take risks and they're gonna be more beholden to the party so that it protects them. Uh, and so I think that's a cost as well, even though for him, it's an accomplishment. Love it. And I think we have a couple questions outside the book that we wanted to touch on, just one or two, maybe from Tiger. But before I do that, I mean, when reading your book, you touched on a lot, a lot of different topics. 
as a, a college student right now, I took a lot of lessons from it. I learned a lot of things, especially as a student who's interested in politics and interested in governance. I just wanted to ask you, you know, your audience for this book, who was it? What do you hope they're taking away? And, and what's the big idea or what's the big uh, theme that we can learn from it, especially college students who are main audiences? Yeah, I mean, my audience is multiple, We're definitely college students, definitely readers who just like to read books or newspapers and long magazine articles about uh, politics beyond the moment. I mean, the heart of this book and the heart of my writing, even when I'm on television or writing an op-ed, is to help provide some context to the constant second-by-second -second analysis that you see uh, on a daily basis in journalism. And I wanted, with this book, to give some sense of how did the Republican Party get to the place where it is? And how do we explain what you see from the GOP, uh, which is very different than the party of Lincoln and definitely even different than the party of Nixon, how did this happen? And I wanted an explanation that gets us out of the ear of the Tea Party, even out of the ear of Donald Trump, and, and really sees the deep roots of how this all came together uh, and how embedded it is now in the DNA of the party um, so that people walk away in the 220 election, whatever happens, uh, really sensing why this isn't gonna change very, very quickly. And I also wanted to talk about what some of the cost is. It's not a book that is really meant to just say Gingrich is a bad guy. It's meant to say there are really huge consequences to the logic of his argument. Uh, and to this prioritization of partisanship above anything else. It's very effective, and, and he was an effective politician, but there were costs that we're still paying for. We're paying for it in the middle of this pandemic right now, because you're seeing that partisan uh, logic be triumphant over anything else. And then I wanted to finally, look, my mission is to get people interested in politics. I mean, I've devoted my career to that. So my classes are about all my books are trying to find ways to talk about these big issues that you read about in interesting ways. Uh, and with this, I wanted to find a character and he's a character and I wanted to find a specific story. It's, a, it's like a real life house of cards where someone's brought down and, and to use that to engage people in partisanship and how we have and why we have partisanship that's a little more engaging than talking about the sorting of voters or these bigger trends uh, to personalize the history. And so those, those were the different goals I had with the book. Professor you just quickly mentioned uh, where the GOP is kind of headed right now. And I would, it's very different from uh, the, the party of Lincoln, obviously. I would really love to get your quick take on this because a lot of people say that even Trump doesn't get elected. Whoever succeeds him will be kind of a Trumpian guy. I mean, there are people who come out and say Tom Cotton, Nikki Haley, uh, even Donald Trump Jr. And, and people ask the question, why nobody from the Republican Party dare to come out and oppose Trump, uh, even when Trump's decisions seem so obviously wrong? I mean, policy punch on is not partisan, so we don't want to make any kind of bland statements or criticisms here. But it just seems that whoever that succeeds Donald Trump in the, in the next cycle will have to be kind of a Trumpian guy. Will he or she? Yeah, at some level, yes, because it's not hard to understand. The party isn't that far off from where Donald Trump is. And, you know, his behavior personally is, is definitely different than, than many Republicans. But a lot of the policies he supports and a lot of his basic political style, it's not so anomalous. Uh, he just reveals it in more extreme ways. But it's what we've been seeing from the Republican Party uh, for at least a decade now, really, uh, as, as the dominant form of Republican politics, whether it's a kind of hardline opposition to immigration, which is not new, this has been around the GOP since the 90s, or it's this kind of use of Fox News, uh, you know, uh, disinformation, elected official triangle as a legitimate form of governing. We've been seeing that as well. You saw it with the birther movement. Uh, when President Obama was in office. And so it's not going to change. You'd have maybe a cleaned up version of it and maybe a more restrained version. But Republicans have to acknowledge at some point, this is the establishment. They are the establishment. Donald Trump's the establishment. 
This generation of Republicans, they are the establishment. Jeb Bush, for example, he's an outlier. So there's no reason this is gonna change very soon. And most politicians, even if they don't have principle, they know this is how you're gonna get elected. And so there's no reason you're gonna see a major shift in the near future. Perfect. And uh, I think this is the last question before we wrap up. And it's, it's a bit of an open-ended one, a broad political one. You mentioned getting people involved in politics, or at least getting them interested in politics. I have to admit, for our generation, it seems that the political apathy is high. You know, our turnout rate is not good in elections. For people who feel disengaged from politics, what can they take? What can they look to as a reason to get back involved in politics? and involved in the civic engagement experience, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, the, the basic thing is without citizen participation, things get worse. And that's the uh, trade-off you're making. Uh, low participation, low turnout, disengagement from young people. Uh, not only will the whole democracy be worse off, but young people will be uh, in even worse condition in terms of representation and you have to understand that. It's an obligation. It's not uh, simply something you want to do. Uh, there is an obligation to be part of the democracy and part of the republic. And now we're in a moment where I think it's pretty clear to everyone, it should be, the consequences of public policy, the consequences of what politicians are doing. Uh, we're entering a new phase of the pandemic, which unfortunately is not turning in the right direction. And a lot of that is a consequence of policy decisions we've seen in the White House and in state capitals about how to reopen the economy. Uh, and we, you, all students and, and non-students are living through the effects of, of policy decisions. And you see this in the protests of the streets, which, which gives some indication students and younger people do care uh, about what happens if, if we just keep letting policing operate the way it operates. Uh, the stories of, of the horrendous story of George Floyd is a story that has happened so many times. I edited a book on the Kerner Report, which uh, was a report in 1968 on why was there so much um, turbulence in the cities in the summer of 67. And in every single city, the report came back to the same issue, policing uh, and, and, and incidents of harassment and outright violence. And, and we keep living through this. That policy doesn't change on its own. It only changes through people who care, protesting people who care, voting people who care, ultimately saying, you know what, I'm gonna devote some of my life to this kind of issue. I'm gonna go into government. I'm gonna go into a nonprofit. So I, I really think it's, it's quite crucial. And never have I, in some ways, felt it's as crucial as right now just because I'm living through the kind of history I usually write about. Um, so, but it's hard. And, and I do think part of the obligation comes to adults such as myself, uh, because it's easy to blame students for being disengaged. It's easy to blame students for being disenchanted. But, but part of the obligation is on my generation and older generations to keep kind of working with your generation to help both of us see the why in terms of why that engagement can't be something that is open to question. Um, so I think the stakes should be very clear. And, and I really hope that one of the good things that comes out of this horrendous moment we're living in uh, is that more younger people kind of turn to the public sector again and turn to different ways in which you affect public issues. Uh, and decide that's going to be their life's work. That would be a great thing. And it would be a great thing come November 220 if we see the kind of high rates of youth turnout and voting that people often mock and dismiss. And, and it would be great to see all of that just shown to be untrue now. I was about to ask you uh, the final question of policy punchline, but before that, I really want to quickly squeeze in this one because I would be remiss if I don't ask you about politics and polls, which is the podcast you and Professor Sam Wang host, uh, and also the, the reason why Policy Punchline came to exist, because I was this kid who listened to your long-form discussion and was very much inspired by you. And following that, I just want to quickly ask you, because you're a historian by training who deals with the past, 
but you are also a CN analyst and, and a columnist who deal with the present. So how do you make sure you peel away all the noises, especially in today's world where we're constantly seeing eight people debating on CNN and how do we actually get to some of the rich, important ideas like the ones you and Professor Wang explore uh, in your podcast? Yeah, it's, it's hard. I mean, the podcast, that was part of what we wanted to do. It came out of an event we did uh, for some, I think it was alumni. I don't remember, to be honest. They asked us to do an event for a group of people, and the two of us just sat in front of the audience and started chit-chatting. I can't remember which election it was even, uh, and it, we got along very well. It was a fun conversation. He's a, a more quantitative uh, person. He thinks about the polls. He thinks about statistics. And I'm more historical and uh, more narrative. And, and we say, why not just start a podcast on this? And, and it took off. And now we've been doing it for, for years. Um, I think it was 2016, now that I think about it, when we did start. Uh, and, and part of it was to do exactly what you're saying, to try to provide some more contextual discussions some more nuanced conversation between us and we've over the years really become uh, a place for many guests from authors to uh, politicians who have interesting ways to think about the problems we face. So that's what the podcast was and that's what I try to do. I mean, sometimes I don't end up doing it. Sometimes I'm on TV and I'm one of the people, uh, you know, not yelling, but in a debate with someone or on the radio, but generally I'm not. And I tend not, I don't watch much news on TV. Uh, I, I just kind of catch that more. I am on Twitter a lot, uh, but I'm not, you know, particularly beholden to getting all my news from Twitter. And I really love writing my books. My books still are the anchor of what I do. So most of my time, I'm really deeply rooted in some big think project, a book like this, where I'm getting out of the moment and getting into the details of a story and generally that helps me um, kind of balance what I'm doing. And I really, really try uh, both uh, in, on CNN and, and on NPR, I really am trying to bring some of the knowledge I have from my research, from my teaching, from my academic world to the world of uh, public debate and media conversations. And, and that means sometimes I have 30 seconds to say something, which I understand, but I feel, and I, I may be wrong, but I'm committed to the fact there are ways to do that. And in a few words, I can kind of get you to think a little more broadly about what you're following, whether it's a statement about how presidential power works, something about partisanship or something quick on, on history to give us some context. I've now been doing this since 1998, and, and that's kind of my internal mission. Uh, and so I don't have an answer to how I do it, but, but I work hard to keep that perspective and not simply be another person on the panel who happens to be a historian. I wanna be the historian on that panel who gives weight to a different kind of analysis. That sounds absolutely wonderful. So at the very end, what would your policy punchline be for today's interview? Uh, wear a mask, uh, get people to wear a mask and require people to wear a mask. Sometimes there's very clear, simple policy solutions and that's my punchline. That sounds wonderful, Professor Zelizer. And, and uh, about your uh, coming book, I think it's expected to release on July 7th. Is, is that right? Where should people go get it? Amazon, Barnes Nobles, Anywhere. Not with Penguin <laughs> Press. All those online distributors have it. Independent bookstores are selling it and indie uh, or any of those uh, websites as well. Uh, and, and actual bookstores that go in with a mask, social distance, but that's <laughs> open curbside service. They all, they all have it. So it'll be available everywhere. And I'm really excited to have uh, conversations about the book like this one. So thanks, guys. This was terrific. That's, that, that sounds great. So I urge our listeners to go buy the book, uh, Burning Down the House, New Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party. It's about partisanship, a fascinating story about how New Gingrich transformed the Republican Party kind of for the worse, maybe. So uh, thank you so much for the conversation today, Terrell and uh, Professor Salazar. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Professor Salazar. Uh, and this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Please visit us on policypunchline.com. Follow us on iTunes, Spotify, and go listen 
to Professor Salazar's podcast, Politics on Polls, uh, on the same platforms. Thank you so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.